0: So I'm starting a series on Christmas. I got the idea, actually, by going to church last week with uh, Pastor Pat, and uh, I'm going to kind of follow his lead, and uh, we'll be talking about issues surrounding the birth of Christ. So that's sort of the plan introductory today. So as we approach Christmas season, I'm reminded uh, that this season is brought to us not because of anything particularly good, but because of our rebellion against God. If there wouldn't have been a rebellion against God, there wouldn't be a Christmas season. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but the thought kind of struck me as a little odd. You know, Adam and Eve were placed in a perfect environment. They were in a world without sin or sickness. They didn't catch colds. They didn't get sick. A world without need. They didn't need social programs to support the needy. There were no needy. Had they been able to stay in the garden, there would have never been any need if we're speculating. We really don't know what the world would have been like had they not been kicked out of the garden. There certainly was no pain unless Adam was a lot like me. And that is he walked around the garden with his head down. I'm forever walking around looking down. And that's, that's great because you don't strip over things, but you do tend to walk into trees. And I do believe, even in the garden, in a perfect garden, if you walk into a tree, I do believe it would hurt. So I believe the, the issue of pain was even evident back then. Uh, I'm speculating. Everything they needed was right in the garden. Notice they had to work still. Work is good. Uh, work gives us purpose. Work gives us self-worth. Work, work is what we need to make us healthy. I mean, emotionally healthy. So they had work. They had a world to care for and to manage. In fact, they were supposed to oversee the entire world. I don't know how that worked. I honestly don't know how long they stayed in the garden. Uh, I, I don't, I've never read anyone that would even speculate how long they survived in the garden. Uh, how long it was. I mean, when you're reading it, it's only a few verses, so you think, well, it couldn't have been long, but we don't know. We don't know how long their condition stayed that way, but whatever length of time they were in the garden, they ended up breaking it. We broke it. We had a world, and we broke it. And And the point that I want to make right in the beginning here is what we broke. By sin, by our rebellion against God. I mean, we want to blame Adam and Eve, but the truth is we've all done the same thing. If the world were to suddenly stop sinning, the world would change. We can't now because we broke it. But if if that were to happen, if it were theoretically possible, which it's not, but if we were to simply all stop sinning, the world would change immediately. Would it go back to paradise? I don't think so. But whatever we broke, we can't fix. This is my point, actually. Apart from God's intervention, the world is hopeless. Sin has ruined the world. So don't waste your time thinking that some politician or a teacher or some sociologist or even a preacher can do anything to unmake the mess that we've created. It's up to God. God is our only hope. Now the one thing that Adam and Eve could not do when they got in that garden, the one thing God told them not to do was eat of the fruit of one tree. He called the tree the knowledge of good and evil. There was also a tree there called the tree of life. Apparently, they were both in the center of the garden, and they were predominant trees. We don't know that. We're just speculating, you know. And it seems that this tree of knowledge of good and evil and its fruit was the first thing that attracted these two. And it it kind of reminds you of a kid when you say, don't touch that. Don't touch that. The first thing the kid does goes, why? You know, why not? The one thing they could not do was eat of that tree. In the next sentence, we read that they're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree was a test. It was a test. To see if they would obey God, and God puts these tests in front of us all the time. There's times that things will happen, and something in your heart will say, "Don't do that," and you know you're not supposed to do it. That's a test. We need to pass one or two before we die. It was a test to see if an Adam and Eve would obey God and go their own or go their own way, and like every one of us, when they were tested, they failed. They chose rebellion over obedience. They chose to go their own way rather than follow God's plan for their life. And they they regretted it in the end. You know that. They chose Satan's lies over God's plan for their lives, and it's a shame. Now, we often try to blame God for this. We often try to look at God and say, why do you allow wars? Why do we have COVID? Why do we have sickness? Why do we have death? Why, why are people dying? Why are these things happening in our world? And I hate to tell you, but I'm a pessimist, and our world is not getting any better. But sickness and war and death, they all happened because we turned away from God. Not because God had done something wrong. It's not His fault. It's ours. And we can't blame Him for the mess we've made. Now, when you go to Genesis chapter 3, and verse 16, you'll read the curse. I'm not going to preach on the curse. I'm going to preach on the promise. But I want you to read the curse just to remind yourself. I'm in verse 16. Unto the woman. This is after they'd fallen. After Eve uh, took the first bite and Adam took the second and God showed up and said, what is this that thou hast done? And they had this little speech that God gave because you've done this, all right? Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy pain and thy conception In pain thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Now that's bad when you're a farmer and a gardener, when God curses the ground. In toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles. Now, you know, that makes weeding hard. I think they had to weed all along. I think the garden grew weeds. I think weeds existed. And I think that's what tending the garden meant. Cut the excess growth and weed. But now they're weeding thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. That's the curse. That's the curse. It's actually the result of our sin. I don't don't read this, nor do I normally teach it, as if God is saying all these bad things, I'm going to make all these bad things happen. I think what God is saying is because you've done this, this is the result, see. Life will be easy no longer. Everything about it will be more difficult. Men and women will vie for power. Work will be impossible to enjoy, and death will be inevitable. We call that the human condition. It is the human condition, but it's the fallen human condition. And this is what prompts Christmas, you see. This is the impetus that caused God to send his son. In this curse is a promise, and you're right there at that verse. Jews and Christians alike read verse 15, and they recognize the promise of a Messiah in Genesis 3. Immediately after Adam and Eve refused to obey God in one restriction, God came and pronounced this judgment against man, the woman and the serpent. But then, I'm in 4000 BC. Now, if you try to find dates on this stuff, you're going to find a lot of disagreements. And... Anywhere, well, people really don't know the exact date. That's the problem. But somewhere between 3,500 and 5,000 B.C., this promise was given. And I will put enmity. Now, that means a state of warfare, right? There will be a state of warfare. But this time, God's doing it. And I will put a state of warfare between you and the woman, the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, right? It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Most modern translations read crush. It will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. This war between God and evil has begun in the garden when man listened to Satan and gave Satan authority that God never intended for him to have. And this battle began 4,000 years before Jesus was born. And again, that date is just a guess. This is the promise that the serpent will ultimately be defeated by the seed of the woman and has come to represent our hope. And for 6,000 years, the hope of mankind has rested in this promised seed of woman, came to be known as the Messiah, came to be known as Christ, the one we call Jesus. Now, when you think of Christmas, I always thought the word Christmas meant a celebration of Christ. Now, not being a Catholic, I didn't know this stuff, so I'm going to share it with you just because I was curious. Now, I knew that the word Christ is Greek, comes from the Greek, the Greek word Christos, and the definition of the Greek word Christos is the anointed one. And and When the Jews came back from Babylon, they translated their Bible into Greek because very few Jews were even speaking Hebrew by then. And they created what they called the Septuagint, the Septuagint is 70 authors. And they wrote a Greek Bible, a Greek copy of the Old Testament. And in that they translated the word, the Hebrew word for Messiah, they translated that to the word Christ. So that's where we get the word Christ is symbolic of its reference to the Jewish Messiah. So we knew that the first half of the word Christmas is a reference to Christ, the anointed one. All right. If you think of the anointed one, then you get away from the word Christ in Christmas. But the word Mass, I always thought meant celebration, not being a Catholic. But the English word Mass comes from a Latin word, which is Messiah, and of course I'm saying it wrong. But the word means to be sent. Now I didn't know this. The Latin word, has been used since the 6th or 7th century to describe the Catholic celebration of the Eucharist. Now, we don't use the word Eucharist, we use the word the Lord's Supper. So they describe the Mass as the way, the, the form in which they celebrate the Lord's Supper. All right, this word is used during the conclusion of the celebration when the priest or a deacon says in Latin, forgive my Latin, ite missa este. All right. Literally translate, go, it has been sent. It has been sent. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote in a commentary on these words and explained in his Summa Theolo- Theology that from this phrase the Mass derives its name Go, it has been sent. masse. The deacon on Festival's days dismisses the people at the end of the Mass by saying, Ite missa este, that is, Jesus Christ has been sent. That's what Christmas means. I didn't know that. That's what the word mass means. It has been sent. Uh, So then the word Christmas is a reminder, literally, that the anointed one has been sent. That's news to me, not being a Catholic. It's very interesting. But between that first prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and the arrival of Jesus, there were many, many prophecies, and I, I know one time I used the number 250, and another I used the, the, the number 350, and it's a question of how many prophecies there are of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I just recently read of a guy who said there's 555 references to Christ in the Old Testament. He was seeing Jesus everywhere. I'm impressed with him. But I didn't read them all, you know. But between the first and the prophecy and the arrival of Jesus, there's a lot of prophecies and I just want to read some of them to you and I want you to see them in your Bible. So what could an Old Testament Jew know about Jesus? That's the question. So we're looking at Christmas this week as prior to the arrival of Christ and what a person could know about him. So I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham. You remember the story. Abraham waits, Was it, 99 years to have a son. The son finally gets born. He grows up a little bit. He might be 18 years of age. And Abraham's trying to go to bed one night. And God says, now take your son, your only son, up on this mountain that I'm going to show you and offer him as a sacrifice for me. Well, it turns out the mountain that God leads him to is the very mountain where Jesus was crucified. So we know that God is setting up a picture here. We know that things are going on. So Abraham, you know the story, gets up on the mountain, goes to offer his son, piles up the wood, puts Isaac on top, goes to slay his son, and God stays his hand, offers a ram in his place. Abraham kills the ram, and he says this. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be, future tense, seen. Are you seeing that in Genesis 22, 14? Abraham knew that he was creating a picture He was acting out a play that would one day come to pass when God would actually, literally, offer his only son on the same exact spot. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham and out of heaven a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, said the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven." I don't know how he keeps from laughing at this point. I'm 99 years old. Stars of the heaven are not in me, you know. And as the sand which is in the seashore, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. But Abraham has spread between the the Arabs and the Jews. Abraham has spread over the whole world. Now, the thing I wanted to get to is verse 18. This is the promise. And in thy seed, this child in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. 4,000 years before Christ, the promise was made that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. 2,000 years before Christ, we understood, well, people in his day understood, that that Messiah would come through Abraham. Now, we would say nowadays that that Messiah would be a Jew, Because Abraham was the first Jew. Jesus told the woman at the well when he met her, salvation is of the Jews. That's in John chapter 4 and verse 22. Salvation, the world's only hope, came through Israel. Now I want you to think about that for a minute because I want you to notice how Satan has made every effort to destroy Israel and turn the world against the Jewish people. And this is why, because salvation is of the Jews. Think about how often world powers, I mean, all the way back to Babylon, Egypt. uh, Just pick a country, Greece, that has tried to destroy Israel. How often world powers have tried to destroy every trace of Israel. And think about the fact that Israel is God's answer to our sins. Think about that. Keep in mind, as every step in God's plan for our redemption is revealed, new enemies arise to destroy and stop God's plan for our lives. Think about that. You can see we're in the middle of a war when you just look at the history of Israel. And the point that I want to make here is that yet, in spite of the opposition to Israel, to God's plan, God's plan continues His son arrived, he died exactly on time and in the place he was supposed to die and he provided salvation for anyone who would believe. God's plan was not, and I'm going to prophesy here, will not be thwarted. God will accomplish what he sets out to do. So let's get a little closer to Jesus. In 1200 BC, there was this crazy guy named Balaam. I, I don't know if he was a believer or a heathen lunatic, but he was a prophet, and God spoke through him, through Balaam. And what, what Balaam tells us in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17 is just one verse I shall see him, but not now. I, this is Balaam prophesying. I shall behold him, but not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Seth. And you think, what is that saying? Well, what that's saying is, not only is the Messiah coming through the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, but now we know it's coming through the line of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And if you go a thousand years before Christ, as we get closer to the event, a thousand B.C., David wrote, I'm in Psalm 72 and verse 9, they that dwell, Psalm 72, 9, they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isle shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and she- the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. And this is David prophesying that the Messiah would be worshipped not only by shepherds from the desert, but also that foreign kings would bring presents to him. Now, I, I'm, I didn't read the Christmas story. I probably should have started with the Christmas story I'm assuming you know it but every one of these things were fulfilled every one of these prophecies were fulfilled David again in Psalm 22 tells us that he would be crucified now he doesn't use the word crucified but he says they pierced my hands and my feet I'm in Psalm 22 now verse 15 we're still a thousand years before Jesus now a thousand years ago who lived in the United States what prophecy would you read a thousand years ago that you would trust today? David, again, a thousand years before Christ, verse 15 of Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt, talking about the dehydration of the cross, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaw, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death for dogs, and of course you know that means Gentiles have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked, that's Jerusalem leadership have enclosed me they've pierced my hands and my feet describing the nails in his hands and his feet I may tell all my bones describing the dislocation of being crucified and they look and stare upon me they part my garments among them and they cast lots upon my vesture a thousand years before Jesus 800 years before crucifixion even began to be invented 800 years before the Romans Started nailing people to crosses. In 700 B.C., Isaiah came along. 300 years later, from Isaiah 7:14, we know that he'll be born of a virgin. This is a familiar passage, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign: behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. So now we know that this person that's prophesied will be miraculously born and we'll come to recognize him as God in our midst. Isaiah again in Isaiah 53 tells us that this same Messiah will suffer for our transgression and his death will heal us from our sins. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. The promise that salvation from sin, will come through the punishment and suffering of this promised Messiah. We've covered almost 3,000 years of prophecy now. 700 BC again, Isaiah, we find that the Messiah will come through David's father, Jesse. So first we came through Abraham, and then we came through Jacob, and now we're coming through Jesse. Isaiah 11, 1, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge of the fear of the Lord. Again, 700 B.C., almost 3,500 years before we started, Micah said, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, thou though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old and from everlasting. So now, because of Micah, we know that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. In 750 BC, and I got that out of order, I'm sorry, in response to his attempt on the life of Jesus, Joseph is warned of a dream to take Jesus into Egypt. And Hosea tells us that out of Israel, I have called my son. I'm sorry, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And that verse is Hosea 11.1, if you're looking for it. 700 years uh, before Christ. 600 years before Christ, Jeremiah lived. This is about each time I just took their birth and their death and I picked a date in the middle, uh, an easy date in the middle. So somewhere in the middle, uh, actually these prophecies were probably nearer to the end of their lives than the beginning of their lives, but I don't know when the exact prophecy was made. But Jeremiah, uh, somewhere in the middle of his life in 600 B.C., tells us that of the three sons that Jesse had, David would be the one through whom the Messiah would come. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. So we're following this all the way from the seed of the woman all the way now up till David. And I'm almost done. I know you're getting tired of Scripture. Uh, It it can get tedious, I know. Jeremiah, again, 600 B.C., 600 years before Jesus was born. Where were we 600 years ago in this country? We didn't even know it was here, did we? Try, Try to think about that. This is the name by which he will be called, Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. So now 600 years. Now that word Lord I, I, in the King James is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I know that's tedious. But that's, that's King James uh, way they reference the word Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah, our righteousness. Uh, and what this says is, God is going to provide righteousness for us. You see that? The only hope of our standing will be through this Christmas gift of Jesus Christ who came, lived his life, and died in our place. The only hope of salvation. The only hope that our righteousness will get us to a point where we can stand in the presence of God is that if we trust his righteousness. And finally, Jeremiah 31:15. Jeremiah uh, tells us that when the Messiah is born, children will be slaughtered. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And you know the Christmas story, how uh, the king, jealous of the possibility of a new king, went and killed every newborn under the age of two years just in order to uh, hopefully slaughter this one that was prophesied to replace him, unaware of the fact that if God says it's going to be done, it's going to be done, and also unaware of the fact that God had already moved his son to safety before it even happened. Now, I, I picked up this this uh, off the Internet, a, a guy at a, actually a Church of Christ church named David Tadelbaum. Tadelbaum. Uh, I, I don't know much about him. Uh, is that a name you're familiar with? I, I've, I've heard his name mentioned by other preachers. He he makes this scenario for his church, and I thought I'd share it with you. Uh, he's in Texas, so the whole thing's set in Texas. If I were more creative, I'd set it in Vermont, because we're in Vermont. Imagine that in Waco, Texas, ancient scrolls are uncovered which were written thousands of years ago. Some were written before the discovery of America by Columbus, and all were written before the American Revolution. The scrolls predict that someone in our generation will be born who is of a direct lineage to George Washington. This person would be sent from a long line of important founders of America, all of whom were known to be from Virginia. Imagine further that the scrolls reveal that that person would be born in Tarrant County, Texas, in a town of Azel, miraculously, his mother would be a virgin at the time of his birth. Dignitaries from all other countries would mysteriously know about him and would come to worship him and present him with precious gifts, believing that he was special envoy, believing that he was a special envoy from God. In addition, try to imagine that these prophecies would also reveal that as a result of this child being born, local ruling tyrants would make an attempt to murder him. This would result in the deaths of many other innocent children whose mothers would weep over their loss. To protect this special child from tyrants, this father would take him to another country, later bringing him back. This future child would grow up to lead a religious revolution. What is the chance of that happening? Now imagine that all this came to be true in our lifetime, fulfilling the predictions of these century-old scrolls, as astronomically unlikely as the creation of, preservation and fulfillment of these written prophecies might seem this is a fair parallel to what we have in the ancient Hebrew scriptures in the prophecies about Jesus now as I close I want you to think you know I've often tried to find statisticians who will give us the probability there there are 12 prophecies here I've often tried to find someone that could give me some statistical analysis of the probability that one man, one Jew, who lived at one specific time would fulfill just these twelve of hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Christ. And when they when they do that, they, they always come up with numbers like, you know, one times ten to the ninth or one times ten to the thirty-fifth, and that doesn't mean anything to me. Just ten with a bunch of zeros after it. Just darn unlikely is what it is. It's impossible. It's impossible except for God where all things are possible. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, there's a verse there I want you to see as it relates to this. This is all in the plan of God. God, and I, I don't, pretend to understand God even a little bit. And if I start trying to understand God even a little bit, I get confused. So don't think I have any concept of what I'm talking about. But even more astounding than these 12 prophecies, just hand-selected out of easily 100, these 12 prophecies, as unlikely as it is and incredible as it is that God prophesied all these things as much as 4,000 years before Christ, many of them a 1,000 years before Christ, some of them 600 years before Christ, as impossible as that is. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, I find even more spectacular. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing we need is in Christ. I hope you see that in that verse. Had blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ knowing what to do tomorrow, figuring out how to solve the problems of today, healing from the hurts and problems of our life, it's all in Christ. It's all there. I said at the beginning, we can't fix this, but God can. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why we have a Christmas. Now look at verse 4, the next verse. According as he hath chosen us in him, that's exciting, before the foundation of the world, So you go back to that first prophecy I read, which was 4,000 years ago, and before that, before the foundation of the world, somehow God sat down and had a discussion within the Godhead, and your name came up. That's what Paul is saying here. And I really wish you to put a little footnote on there and explain what the foreknowledge of God means and what it means to be chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. But it certainly means to me that God had a plan for us, you and me, before any of this began and nothing has caught Him by surprise. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, this is what we're supposed to be. That's his plan for us, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He chose us, And predestined means he marked out a path. He marked out a path just like that road. We're supposed to follow that path. And as we follow that path, that path makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. So this Messiah that was promised 4,000 years ago now becomes our goal in life to be like him. That's the message of Christmas. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this season. Thank you, Lord for reasons that I cannot begin to fathom, for adding my name to your list and for adding our names to your list. Thank you for making it possible that one day we're going to look up, we're going to hear a trumpet, we're going to see Jesus, and he's going to say to us, come up here, and instantly we'll be in the spirit with Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.